Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round, we're, we're doing a return to the world of Warhammer. We're talking about the Leagues of Votan and how that links to squats and also critically how it links to retconning, which is going to get us into the conversation, big conversation, about things like nationalism imperialism and oh we're going to get into so many different thorny subjects here that should be interesting but first let us go into the juicy world of warhammer and specifically warhammer 40,000 so okay as i've said before warhammer 40,000 comes out in 1987 first edition rogue trader warhammer 40,000 or warhammer 40,000 rogue trader take your pit anyway point is this that edition, which lasted for about five, six years, as I said previously, I actually left the hobby just before the second edition came out. I didn't know there was a second edition. When I walked into the shop 25 years later and discovered, you know, with my kids, it's like, OK, we're on the eighth edition now. OK, that's interesting. So anyway, point is this. Things have changed. Everything changed. A lot of people think that the first real formal one, if you're going to look at things like the story, it was there in the first edition, but they'd kind of settled on it properly from the second edition onwards. And Warhammer's kind of notorious, both in terms of Age of Sigmar and also 40,000, that they don't really change things wholesale. Everybody basically is an unreliable narrator. It's all seen from their point of view. Documentation is always muddled and incomplete, and it just allows them to write kind of whatever they want. It does lead to problems where people say, well, this definitely happened. And Well, indeed, if you're paying for books, like on the Horus Heresy, for example, you don't want to be told 10 years later, yeah, there's another way of looking at that didn't really happen that way. It's like, well, why did I bother reading that book? I, I get when people start having hills to die on on certain things. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! But in first edition, there were a number of different imperial forces. I've mentioned many of them before. The most famous, literally the poster boys for the whole of the company, the Space Marines, the Astra Militarum is one of them. 
But what they did a lot of is bring stuff from the fantasy world into the futuristic Warhammer 40,000 world. There are orcs and orocs. Names have changed over the years in both versions. Fair enough. There are humans in both versions. There are elves, basically, in both versions. I didn't know you had elves working here. You get the idea. There's a lot of the traditional stuff that's being dragged over. And another one that was dragged over were the dwarves. Now, you couldn't exactly call them dwarves, so they were called squats. And I liked the squats. There was a sort of uh, a joy to those figures, particularly in the first edition era. And a lot of them were trike-riding heavy weapons groups. So if you can imagine a trike and mounted on the back would be something like a heavy machine gun or heavy bolter in this case, or something like a multi-milter. They were mobile. They couldn't take a lot of damage, but they could dish out a lot of damage. They also weren't particularly expensive. They also had double bolters on the front, so they could cause a lot of trouble. I really liked the trikes of the squats, as they were called. Can't call them dwarves, so let's call them squats. Of course, squat is generally a derogatory term nowadays, so they kind of stuck with it in, in a few bits and bobs. More on the retconning in a moment. It's an amnesia pill, my own recipe with a touch of denial and a dash of retcon. And it was just joyous, okay? A lot of them had like cigars and shades on and sometimes had their peaked caps the other way round. There was a definite biker vibe to it. Also, I remember the good old fashioned mole mortar. Worked exactly like a normal mortar, only rather than going over your head in an arc, it went underground. It was a drill based thing that went in an arc underground, then exploded into you. And they, they were just, they were a lot of fun. They had different equipments to other things, but they were fundamentally slow versions of the Imperial Guard. I get the point that by the third edition, there was basically no support for them. They were being quietly shelved. And while there were occasional references to them, their high point in sort of the second edition, and indeed there's another version of Warhammer 40,000 called Epic, or it's also called Adeptus Titanicus, where basically everything is scaled down super small. So rather than being 28 millimeters, the average figure, we're now talking about, I think, I think it's probably about two millimeters. That's it. So the, the people, a little tiny base would have five little guys on it, but it allowed you to have these massive, huge, stompy robots, which were at a reasonable size and a reasonable price. And you could have massive games with just literally thousands of space marines, if you had that and much money. But you get the idea. Hundreds of space marines, loads of vehicles on the field, and also there's big stompy robots as well, the Titans. And uh, we love playing that. And they went further with each one of the factions. There were some amazing Eldar, sort of either very large dreadnoughts or very small Titans, which, you know, you could now buy a Wraith Knight to this day, but you can't buy. There was a sort of like four-legged centaur type one, which I've still got a metal miniature of somewhere. And the dwarves, they kind of moved it into the more Scandinavian element, which is a problem because, as I said, they're already a bit like the Imperial Guard. And the Scandinavian thing is very much the Space Wolves. That's one of the legions of the Space Marines, one of the chapters by the time you get to 40,000. So... The problem with the squats is they didn't have their own defined area. There wasn't really a reason you would buy them rather than any other army out there. But in the epic scale, you had these sort of things like land trains with these sort of beautiful runes, these Nordic runes on the side of them, massive cannons on the front of them. They, they were great fun. They looked great. They were never sort of at like large plastic model 
range or anything like that. But in the epic scale, there's some really cool vehicles that still haven't been brought into the Warhammer 40,000 game, which is a real shame. So everything went quiet, basically from the third edition onwards. It's quiet. Too quiet. Nobody had said that they weren't played, but they're just there was never a codex brought out, which is like a list of rules for them. And there were no new models to support it. Over the years, and we're talking decades now, occasionally they would pop up. Interestingly, when it came to Age of Sigma, I believe the first brand new army that came out was this kind of steampunk group called the Arconauts. And, well, there are lots of different names of them in them. The Caradron Overlords is the overall name of the group, the faction, you know, all these sort of cool things. And they kind of had balloons using various weird magical technology to carry gunships across. And this is something that you have in Age of Sigma. So, you know, if you've got something that's like a battleship that's floating on massive balloons with loads of cannons on it, that's a bit of a game changer in a game where not everybody has missile weapons. They don't, not everybody has a bow and arrow. Nice try, kid, but I think you just brought a knife to a gunfight. So those were kind of almost like squats in the other one. But things had gone quiet. And the people were saying, oh, why don't we bring back the squats and so on and so forth. And occasionally there were little rumours going, yeah, but the problem is, how do we fit them in? And where do they go in the lore, the L-O-R-E? But there were the occasional squats, particularly in the side game Necromunda. This is on a hive world. This is where basically the countryside is just a blasted radioactive toxic sludge wasteland. And every now and then there are these gigantic towers, these hives of humans. And literally a hive would contain billions of people and tower up to the sky and up to the clouds. It's a really cool idea. And Necromander is like gang warfare. So you're never going to get the space marines because one space marine would kill everybody and nobody would be able to chip away at his armor. So it's just a different type of game. It's, it's that soft spot. It's actually quite like the original Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader because... Part of it is like a board game where you roll dice and shoot things, but part of it's almost like a role-play game because characters can develop and, and things like that. And there are some, well, some halflings in there. And also there are a couple of dwarves in there as well. And the rumour around them now is that the dwarves exist, but they're, if you like, their glory days are well past them. They're almost like a semi-extinct species. If you think about something like native groups, things like the Native Americans in America, or something like the Aboriginal groups in Australia, they still exist, but they're nowhere as populous as they used to be, and other people have got in the way and imposed their own way of doing things. So we're also talking about a slightly different race here. The Imperials, it is worth pointing out, the Imperials are very much like, I'm going to leap into this now, 2000 AD, when I was growing up, there was this thing called Nemesis the Warlock. Absolutely loved it. In the name of chaos, I command Satanus to arise. Nemesis was an alien, and he was fighting against the termites of, of terror, basically. Earth, and they were led by Torquemada. And Torquemada was based on the real Thomas de Torquemada, who led the Spanish Inquisition not a nice guy, and they sort of imagined him again as this sort of space dictator with these sort of religious zealots, and they really wanted to kill all aliens. All aliens are heretics and, and disgusting monsters and must all be put down. Here's a film about a hideous, misshapen monster bent on eradicating all opposition in order to become master of the universe. It's Nemesis, the Warlock. 
If this sounds familiar to Warhammer 40,000 players, it's another example that Warhammer 40,000 wasn't created in a vacuum. And actually there's quite a lot of DNA going from Warhammer 40,000 and all the way back into 2000 AD. Things like Nemesis the Warlock was coming out in like 1980. It's before even the original Warhammer Fantasy battle rules had come out. So forget about 40,000, we are talking years later. And yeah, clearly they were influenced. Now they look very different, but there are definite thematic similarities in it. So the point is they don't tolerate monsters, aliens, anything like that. Squats are a different race, aren't they? Well, they're basically in Warhammer 40,000. They're humans that have been on high gravity planets for so long that they got a bit shorter then. Clever idea. And so there's always been this little echoes, rumours, little mutterings about squats. And then on April 1st, 2022, there was a trailer released by Warhammer basically saying, hey, we're back as the Leagues of Votan. <clears throat> All right, we're back. Did we miss anything important? And this led to a huge storm. Basically, people saying, is this an April Fool's or not? And I went, if this is not an April Fool's, it's terrible timing. If it is an April Fool's, it's not very funny because you're getting people's hopes up. The next day, they released a second video going, what, you think we were joking? And then showed some figures. What? You thought we were joking? And it's like, okay, bravo. That is a great example of viral marketing. They won the internet on April 1st and they won the internet on April the 2nd. Well done Games Workshop on that. And you know, I was hoodwinked and I take it all back now. That original tweet was wrong. It was actually an act of genius. And so the idea now is that the main group of squats, now the League of Votan, because we don't want to be using that slightly derogatory word around again, do we? Have been away and they've come back again and they've got really cool tech, and they still have the trike, but it's a hover trike now. The biker aesthetic has gone. It's hard to describe. It's kind of serious, hard sci-fi. And I think it could have done with a little bit of zaniness in there. They're a bit serious, and that sense of humor, I think, is, is lacking, but the figures are superb. I am going to be buying all the starter kits for this kind of thing. There'll usually be a, a sort of like a launch box and all that kind of stuff. All will be bought by Gem. Shut up and take my money. I'm definitely building a Leagues of Votan army, and I'm going to have some fun with it. And all the kits that have been released and shown so far just look amazing. But like I say, it doesn't really go back to what it was. But then again, they've been away from the actual game for probably 25 years and therefore they can happily talk about how they disappeared for centuries if not thousands of years in the actual game and that would actually fit that's okay and i know it's got a lot of people happy some people have said mm, you know don't quite like things not me i mean like i say i wish that they perhaps gone in a slightly different direction and i'm hoping for some future releases something like the land train would be amazing you know considering we've got other big plastic kits out there. Why not? Why not do that? We shall see. So I'm really excited about that, but it's led to this retconning. Now retconning is a very modern phrase. It's been in general parlance for like 20 years, probably a little bit longer. And really what it is, is how do you fit new ideas into an existing narrative and storyline? Retcon is one of these truncated words. It means literally retroactive connectivity. So we're now trying to link it to something in the past and make it all fit together. Like I said, the 
two other new armies that just didn't exist when I was back in first edition of Warhammer 40,000 were the Necrons and the Tau. How did they explain those? Necrons have always been there, just been lying underneath dormant, and then they woke up and they are angry. Good idea, wonderful. There they go back tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Brilliant idea. That explains these weird structures in the background. Great. Tau, well, when we caught up with them at the beginning of the Horus Heresy, they were cavemen. It's all developed in the last 10,000 years, and they've carved out their tiny little corner. No warp drives, so they can't take over the whole universe, but they've created a real problem for the Imperium in their little slice of the edge of the galaxy. So they've basically been on the edges and have come new to the game and new to the universe. Brilliant idea. Bravo. Now we've got with the Leagues of Otan, they've been off and their homeworld's been destroyed by the Tyranids and all this kind of good stuff. So yeah, it works really well. And it's, it's the first real injection of brand new IP for Warhammer 40,000 for, oh, I'm going to say 15 years, 20 years. I know the Mechanicus, the Adeptus Mechanicus has been probably the newest big range, but they've been part of other armies and they, you could have got models for them 25, 30 years ago. It's just we haven't had a whole army. So, yeah, look, Games Workshop needs to broaden their horizons. And what they've done brilliantly with Age of Sigmar is it allows them to come up with anything at any time because there's all these different realms and there's all these different versions and we haven't explored it all. And in terms of the lore, well, you know, we've not been to that bit of that dimension before. So we can, yeah, bring in all this stuff. And, and they have far more armies in Age of Sigmar, even though technically... Warhammer 40,000 has been running longer than Age of Sigmar, although Fantasy Battle came first, and that's the predecessor of Age of Sigmar. So, yeah, I'm really pleased that there's some fresh blood. It's just a shame that it doesn't quite work. And now they're trying to sort of fit it all back in, which brings us to this whole retconning thing. And like I say, this gets into some really tricky situations. So I hope you... I hope you go with me on this, okay? And just before I get started, I'm at GemDaDuccio on Twitter. Say hi, tell me what you think. Always love to get feedback on this stuff. And also, I want to say, look, spread the love. Click subscribe if you like this episode. Tell somebody else. Actually tell another human being. It'd be great if you could retweet my stuff on Twitter when I sort of say, hey, here's the new episode, all that kind of good stuff. So please do do that. But also tell an actual other human being. That would be great. Really appreciate it. And leave us a review because again that helps people find us over the summer we hit the top 50 history podcasts on apple that's a really impressive feat for a little podcast like this let's see if we can do that again so let's get down to it shall we i'm going to start with britain i'm going to move to america and i'm going to talk about greece turkey and india as well but well britain's going to also bring in india the British Empire. Okay, let's talk about retconning on the British Empire. Then maybe your best course would be to tread lightly. The greatest achievement you could argue about the British Empire is that it was willing to self-destruct over Adolf Hitler. When you look at what the Soviet Union got, generally the winners of wars get something. Money, land, dominance, etc. Soviet Union is a classic example of that. After World War II, they basically gobbled up the whole of Eastern Europe under their overlordship. And also they managed to gain some technological advantages. America led the world in technology. Literally in 1945, they were the only country in the world with nuclear weapons. Russia slash Soviet Union was going to follow that up in about five years time. 
But also, America was the overlord at that point. There was a brief period of time there, because the Soviet Union had been on the same side as America, that they weren't competing against each other. That very quickly changed, I hasten to add. And so America had the technological advantage, they had the political advantage. Those were all the things they gained. Basically, the whole of Western Europe had to listen to America. And with things like the Marshall Plan, they basically rebuilt Europe. And they also got involved in things like the Chinese Civil War as well. Britain was the other country, the other major power that was on the winning side of World War II. Apologies to France, you sort of got conquered and uh, needed some assistance. But anyway, the point about Britain is that undoubtedly they had not been conquered. They were the only country to have fought consistently from 1939 to 1945 and also have fought in both main spheres, Asia and also in Europe as well, and North Africa too. So you would have thought that Britain would have got something out of it. Did they get a technological advantage like America, or land like the Soviet Union? No. Basically, the British Empire dissolved shortly after World War II. The critical loss was of India. When I say British Imperial India, I mean India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. And after that, just the dominoes fell. The first country to go independent in Africa was Ghana, and we've got problems in Palestine as the Brits pull out of there, and the Israelis and Palestinians, the Jews and Palestinians, both hating each other, absolutely hated the British and were shooting at my wife's grandfather, who was a British soldier over there in Palestine in 1948. So it's just a sad story. Here's my story, it's sad but true. The British Empire just basically dissolved afterwards. And so when I was going to school, there was this feeling of the good old days of the British Empire. And I'm pleased that things have changed in Britain in the 21st century to say, look, we've got to look at the outrages of the British Empire. We've got to look at the things that the British Empire did wrong. The British Empire made a lot of money from the transatlantic. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Atlantic slave trade, for example, and also those sugar plantations in places like Jamaica, they were basically full of slaves. So there was an accountability. There was a conversation to be had about the dark side of empire. The thing is, though, people generally don't like being told, you're wrong, you're a bad person, here are all the list of things that you've done wrong and bad. And you do that conversation with people, they just shut down. Okay, so that is not the way to have the conversation about the empire, because you're not going to get listened to. It's all right, but again, there is this retconning where if we're going to only look at the bad things, then it looks like only bad things happened, and it's more complicated than that. Now, I've covered this a fair amount in other podcasts. If you've been listening for a while, you'll know that my opinion on the British Empire is it's so big, it's so vast, and it lasted for quite a long time. Not nearly as long as some other empires that I'm going to be mentioning, but if you want to find bad stuff, it's there. But if you want to find good stuff, it's also there. And I come to India being an example of that. Again, I mentioned this in the RRR episode, also in the Prey episode as well, I believe, too. And the thing is, the British are being taught, oh, British Empire's you know, bad. It's, it's, you know, we got to look at the outrages and that does need to be taught. But also, India's doing it, then yeah, we're always going to look like the bad guys. And, and it leads to a distortion of what actually happened. So to use India as an example, the Amritsar massacre, at least 200 people, innocent civilians were killed by British imperial security forces, not by British men, actually by Indian men under the orders of white guys. So that's bad. But then India is the world's biggest democracy. Where did that democratic idea come from? There is no evidence of it prior to colonialism. There was this desire for their own personal voting and leadership, which is actually a direct result of colonialism. Nobody wants to talk about that at all. The tea plantations were actually planted by the British because there's that phrase, all the tea in China. That's because China used to have all the tea and Britain didn't like that. So they nicked these brilliant things like a suitcase greenhouse, which allowed you to take saplings rather than seeds. Trying to grow seeds is really hard. Once you've got a baby plant, that's much easier to do. And through clever British horticulture, they set up an industry worth billions to India right now. And that doesn't really get talked about. The administration that was set up by the British doesn't get talked about. The railroads doesn't get talked about. We don't talk about Bruno, no, no. Basically, something like RRR, where apparently all the British did was steal children, cackle about how evil they were, and shoot brown people all the time. Did that happen? Yes. Is that the only thing that happened? Absolutely not. 
So here, here I am. So I'm trying to sort of like be balanced here, but it shows you this retconning because if you are a country as proud as India, you don't want to point out that, do you know what? Those people who were ruling us for 200 years, they had a point on certain things. That's not very satisfying. And it also makes you sound weak. And we're now back to everything you do is bad. Everything you do is wrong. You mean a pointy finger, pointy finger, pointy finger, and everyone shuts down, doesn't want to talk about it. I'll give you one last example. Hindi is the dominant language of India. It is the language from the north of India where Delhi is and therefore for cultural identity there are places in India, as I said there's in, in the RRR episode, there are more than 20 officially recognized languages in India and there are more sort of sub variations. Basically speaking Hindi in Kerala feels as colonial as speaking English and so therefore there are some parts of India that would rather speak English because it means that they're still being independent to the current centralized power than actually speaking Hindi. And I find that fascinating. One last thing, you get something called the, the, the Indian Mutiny in the 1850s. So this is what it's called in Britain. It's called the First War of Independence in India. And that is not what happened. For starters, there were massacres on both sides. The Black Hole of Calcutta is a real event where basically English civilians were rounded up and were put in such appalling conditions they started dying. That's that's not good. That's not something to be proud of if you're Indian. But also the British absolutely massacred local populations as well. When I say British, of course, they were also local Indian fighters as well, soldiers. So the reality was it was a pushback on colonialism, but it wasn't a request to be, it wasn't an attempt. It, there wasn't like a nationalist leader leading the, the charge forward saying India needs to be run by Indians. That never happened there, but that is kind of the way it's being described in India today. The problem is this, nationalism. Because if you go back 500 years, nationalism didn't exist. We tend to think nationalism is as old as our country's borders, and it's not. It very much started evolving in the late 1600s into the 1700s, and it creates a really complicated conversation today where there is retconning all over the world. Let, let's go to America and let's talk about Britain again, shall we? If you ask your average American, the British were the bad guys, America wanted no taxation without representation. No taxation without representation. And so these evil, brutish red coats were constantly being ambushed by sneaky local American colonists, and eventually the British gave up. That is absolutely wrong. For starters, the taxation that everybody was getting bent out of shape about, the British actually listened and took it away. But they were trying to have a conversation with the colony saying, you cost us money. We do need money from you in some way. How do you propose it? And basically they went, ah, I'm not listening. Ah, revolution. That is basically what happened. And so the other thing is that there were very, very few British troops, redcoats in America. Most of the battles were fought by colonists on both sides. About 100,000 colonists at the end of the war, when peace was signed at the Treaty of Paris in 1783, more than 100,000 American colonists moved to British Imperial Canada because they didn't want to be part of this nightmare thing called the United States of America. There were examples of men who were beaten up in the streets by people who recognised them had been fighting for the, the crown and King George. So it is a complicated conversation. There is 
a brilliant bit of this in Hamilton the musical where they absolutely point out that America was a mess after they you, you congratulations you won your independence now you got to run a country that's never existed before and while there is no doubt let's go back to British excesses and, and violence there's no doubt that the British absolutely carried out massacres and very cynical things like blankets in impregnated with smallpox being given to local Native American communities. There's absolutely no doubt any of that happened. Uh, th that's definitely a thing. But it went into turbocharge when America was on its own. So America kind of likes to sort of point the finger at Britain when it comes to slavery and killing Native Americans. And that's true. But it, it's then forgotten that Britain got rid of slavery before America did by about 50 years. And, well, actually, a little bit more than 50 years. And also, when it came to genocidal behaviors against indigenous peoples, there is far more crime on the doorstep of the United States of America than there is Britain. Neither's good, but this stuff is kind of swept to one side. And you, you do have this polarization in America where they're saying we got to talk about indigenous peoples and slavery and things like that. And did you know that George Washington was a slave owner? Yes, he was. But if that's the only thing you're going to say about him, well, you wouldn't be American right now. You'd all be spending money like pounds and pennies and you'd have basically the British Parliament running America in theory because, yeah, you needed him to actually become independent. So any human being is complex and you do need to say these are the downsides, these people. We, let's not lionize them or turn them into legends, shall we? But also we need to recognize the good things. And what did they do at the time? That's the other thing. Did people think that their behavior at the time was weird or unusual? And the answer's usually no. We're just using modern morality in a time when that modern morality didn't exist and then we get all horribly bent out of shape and it's like oh my god what were they like well they were absolutely of their time just like we're all of our time and i guarantee in a hundred years time people will be looking back to now and going they were a bit weird weren't they why didn't they believe in this or why did they go down that rabbit warren of that particular thinking that was clearly leading nowhere or whatever so over the summer of 2022, I went on holiday to Greece. We're all going on a summer holiday. Now, I've been to Turkey on many times. My father is Turkish, but I'd never been to Greece and I really wanted to go to Crete. I went to Crete. That's, that's where I went with the family. Got to see Knossos. Now, the Palace of Knossos was started to be built. So let's sort of take you back on how far back it is and how it isn't connected to the ancient Greeks. So let's say the peak of the Roman Empire is about 100 AD. Then we talk about all the famous Greeks and the Athenian democracy and all that kind of stuff. That's all happening in the 400s BC. So that's 500 years earlier than the peak of, of Rome. Then we've got the famous Iliad about the Trojan Wars. That was written by Homer about 800 BC. And the events of Troy and all that famous stuff with Achilles, that's about 1200 BC. The Temple of Knossos was abandoned in 1300 BC. So 100 years before Troy, they'd given up on Knossos, basically because of earthquakes. First palace was built there about 1900 BC. So this is incredibly old. They're the oldest palaces in Europe, not necessarily in the world. It's a big deal. The Minoan civilization, where the palace complex of Knossos seems to have been the, the origins of the whole Minotaur and the labyrinth, 
Labros is actually the name of the sacred double-headed axe that they used to worship. This is the other conflated thing. The Minoans seem to be praying to double-headed axes and to bare-breasted women holding snakes or holding their arms up in the air. Cool. Sounds like a plan. And bulls. So that links to the Minotaur pretty well. There is no sign of Zeus there anywhere because he hadn't been invented yet in Apollo and Artemis and all that good stuff. Just hadn't been ex existed yet. And yet, even when we get to the classic Hellenic period, that's a Athenian democracy, that's things like the Spartans and the Battle of the 300 at Thermopylae and all that good stuff, okay? This is Sparta! The point is this. They were connected by religion and language, but not by a culture. The cultures of Thebes and Athens and Sparta were very, very different. They agreed to disagree on everything apart from the fact that Zeus is definitely the father of the gods, and we're all going to have this conversation in ancient Greek, basically. But today, Greece is incredibly proud of being Greece, and yet Greece has never existed. As I've just said, there was this period of Hellenic culture. Let's go back in time, shall we? So the, there's the Greek War of Independence in the 1800s, and then prior to that, it's basically run by the Ottoman Empire, and let's go back to the 1400s on that, okay? And then prior to that, it was part of the Byzantine Empire, which was really the remnants of the Eastern Roman Empire. So let's go before that. And so the Romans actually conquered Greece in the first century BC. So before that, you've got the Alexander of Macedon, Alexander the Great, he's got his empire. And then you've got the Hellenic... There's never been... And the modern borders of Greece... One unified people, all happily talking to each other, never existed until we get this Greek War of Independence in the 1800s. Even that wasn't complete because Crete, where I was, didn't become independent till the 1890s. And you get Thessalonica, Thessaloniki, which is the second largest city in Greece. That didn't become actually Greek until 1911. So... The borders of Greece were changing quite dramatically after the War of Independence. But this is the weird relationship Greece has with the Ottomans. So in Crete, I, I'll tell you a little story about more modern history. World War II, fascinating point. Crete is invaded by the Germans. This is in the summer of 1941. Hitler wants to get on with the invasion of Russia, but he needs to deal with Greece first because the Italians have failed in Greece. Crete is the largest island in the Aegean, it's about 250 kilometers long. It's about 60 kilometers wide. It's a big, long strip. And it's pretty big, pretty remote. How are we going to capture it? And how are we going to capture it quickly? Well, Hitler decided to use the Fallschirmjäger, one of the best words in the German language there, paratroopers. It had worked in lightning fast speed in places like Holland and other places before. And it absolutely fit the sort of blitzkrieg ethos of the German army. And so he dropped in the paratroopers. And indeed, those paratroopers managed to capture this very large island in just under two weeks. And this convinced the allies in World War II Paratroopers are definitely the way forwards. We need to invest heavily in airborne troops because look what they achieved in Crete. And that's why we've got the parachute drops famously on things like D-Day and things like Operation Market Garden, you know, Bridge Too Far and things like that. We're going to fly 35,000 men 300 miles and drop them behind enemy lines. But Hitler, from his point of view, there are such heavy casualties of these elite units that he never dropped them by plane again. 
don't get me wrong, the Fausch and Jaeger existed to the end of the war, but they were deployed in trucks because the cost was too high. So what's interesting is you got the same battle, the same outcome, but the different sides had completely different readings of what was going on there. Now, once the Germans were running Crete, I'm afraid of bad news. They behaved appallingly. Anytime there's partisan activity, they'd go into a local village, round up random people and just shoot them dead. The Greeks do not like their time under German occupation. They love the Greek tourists of today, but didn't like them in the 1940s, okay? My point is this. In the four years that the Germans ran Crete, they killed about 1% of the population. Now let's go to the Ottomans, which ruled the area of Crete for 250 years. The only two times I heard reference to the Ottomans was the fact that they had caused massacres or shot a particular nationalist hero. There was literally a monument on a side of a road at one point, and I asked about that. So the only thing they can say about the Ottomans is, is sort of massacres, and the only thing they can say about Germans is massacres. Well, the Ottomans were there for 250 years. If genuinely they were going around killing people like the, like the Germans were doing, then there'd basically be hardly anybody left on Crete in the modern world. And yet, it's the most populous island. Yes, it's the largest island, but I mean, there are more than 600,000 people there today. And it clearly wasn't just a scene of constant massacre for 250 years. But the Greek, to create Greek nationalism, they've got to push against something. And there is this, once again, this embarrassment of, oh my God, we have been kept under the rule of the Ottomans for the general number is 400 years because that's kind of how long Athens was under. And so the modern dress of the, the formal dress of a Greek soldier, you'll look at them and think, bit odd, why is he wearing a skirt with all those pleats? It is a bit odd they chose to go for a skirt, but anyway, that skirt has 400 pleats in it to denote 400 years of Ottoman occupation. And you ask any Greek and they will tell you the Ottomans were nothing but bad, evil and nasty. And yet, when you go back to actual Ottoman records, there is no such thing really as a Turk. 300 Turks, ethnic Turks, set up the Ottoman Empire around about 1300. That isn't enough people to create a people, if that makes sense to you. So they just interbred with the local populations. And seeing every sultan had a harem of women, and those women were white Christian women who had converted to Islam, they were things like Albanians, Greeks, Ukrainians so on and so forth. And so, yeah, the, the sultans themselves were full of Greek DNA, but nobody thought of it that way at the time. And so in my book, The Sultans, I've actually written a book about the Ottoman Empire. There's literally nowhere in the, let's take the height of the Ottoman Empire, 1600. It's very hard to find anybody who's actually Turkish in the Ottoman Empire, particularly in, in Constantinople, Istanbul, the capital city. Where you've got multiple grand viziers, that's basically the prime minister, the second in command after the sultan, multiple viziers are clearly Greek. And you've got the Janissaries, this is the elite Ottoman soldiers, they were all Christian converts. And we, we don't know for a fact where they're all from, but they have to, some of them, be Greek. And a Janissary who does well ends up becoming a local governor when they retire. It was quite a nice job to have. Now, there were also parents who wanted to hide their children away from the Ottomans who didn't want their 
their strongest boy to become to whisked away to Constantinople, converted to Islam, made to fight in an army. But there are other parents who did genuinely run out there and hand their kids over. My father considers himself as Turkish as Turkish can be. 2022 marks the 100th anniversary of Turkey because it was founded by this guy called Mustafa Kemal in 1922. And yet Turkey is the same as Greece. It's never existed before. Show me on a map in 1500 where Turkey is. It doesn't exist. It never was an independent country in its own right. It's been part of lots of other empires over the millennia. And so it's, it's an absolute artificial construct. So I did a DNA test and unsurprisingly, I had no Turk in me whatsoever. What it actually showed is that it's basically Bulgarian and Arab, which makes complete sense because those were sort of like two key areas of the Ottoman Empire with a big melting pot there. And so, yeah. And when I told my father, you're not Turkish, he got very angry with me, basically. And that's the thing. With nationalism, everybody gets very het up. But the reality is 500 years ago, you just didn't couldn't understand what a country was. You just thought about, I come from this local area, therefore I am a Londoner or I'm Parisian, or more likely you're a tiny little town in Germany that nobody's ever heard of before. That's it. That's it for this particular episode. Thank you so much for listening. Another podcast coming soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.